I, I think what what really makes me pause at this point is when someone has has it's not that they have that unique of a thought process. It's that they've been able to distill it in a really, really memeable way. Like, mm. you know, the whole idea, not, not like, not like Instagram meme or, you know, or like GIF meme, but like, you know, Dawkins meme, like mimetic, like the idea of mimesis, right. like passing through. So like, like the idea of of like being on your deathbed and having no regrets or like living every day to the fullest, taking chances, taking risks. Like that's a very basic concept. I feel like a lot of people throughout history have had that idea, but right. Jeff Bezos put it into like the regret minimization framework yeah. and that sticks so much better than any of the other stuff. So like he's kind of the guy that's known for that idea right now. Yeah. It's not entirely original, but it's also super valuable to put it into a unique package that you can say, okay, today I'm following the regret minimization framework. And there's, and, and it's interesting because like at the extremes, this turns into like charlatanism. And there's a lot of people that all they do is like repackage <laughs> ideas and they don't, they don't really push anything for, but, uh, but, but I think like when done right, it's really, really powerful. Like, I mean, PG and YC have a lot of really good, like very make something people want. Like that's like yeah. the most basic advice. Like, is there anything that's very obvious, but mm. at the same time, it's actually useful. Like it's actually a great sentence to have kicking around in your brain when you're trying to build things. And I see stuff all the time where it's like, that sounds like a good business because you've mishmashed crypto VR and every trend together, but it's like, does anyone actually want what you're building? And so I think that, I think that it's that, and distillation is really, really hard. You know, there's that, there's that famous quote, like I, I would have written you a, a shorter letter, but I didn't have enough time. Like it takes a long time to distill concepts down, especially to get it down to like three words, like regret minimization framework that actually right. speaks volumes. I have a quick announcement to make. I just rebranded Steam My Marketing Podcast as Intellectual Software. And for those of you who have been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that it makes sense. And today's guest is very, very special. It's John Coburn, the founder of Soylent and Lucy. And I've been talking to John for about six months before I even asked him to come up on the pod. And, and one of the biggest reasons why I wanted John to be on the show is because his YouTube channel is absolutely amazing. He talks about companies pushing the limits of technology and he has a deep interest in how people think and that is something that is super interesting to me as well. Let me know what you think on Twitter and don't forget to leave 5 stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. I'm really glad to have you here, John. It's been a long time since we're trying to schedule this, but yeah. it's finally happening. I'm so, so glad that we're doing this and I'm really stoked for this. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, and I guess I want to start with for the few people on Twitter or wherever who don't know what your life journey is about, like, oh, who are you? What have you been up to lately? And what's your story? Yeah, sure. I can give a quick intro. I was born and raised in Pasadena, California, right near Los Angeles. I studied economics in college, but had always been dabbling with programming as a kid. So after I graduated, I moved out to Silicon Valley, tried to start one tech company, didn't really work. And out of the ashes of a couple different tech companies came Soylent, which was a meal replacement company that's doing really well still. 
But about five years into that, I left with one of the other co-founders of that company, our creative director and our head of research and development, and started a new company called Lucy. And what we do at this company is we sell smoking cessation products, as well as new formulations of nicotine products, generally with the goal to help people quit smoking. Not all of our products are approved for smoking cessation, only some of them are, but in general, you know, we want to be a thorn in big tobacco's side. Yeah, yeah. Did you hear one of the recent interviews of a big tobacco company CEO who said that by maybe 2030 or 2040, we want to get rid of all cigarette products? Yeah, yeah. There's a big debate over whether or not they mean that. I'm inclined to believe them, even though they're my competitor and I'd (laughs) obviously be incentivized to say, oh, they're lying, don't believe them. But I think that they are because... And it's not just for the moral reasons, although I think increasingly it is impossible to hire anyone to work at a company like that. So it's an existential problem. It's it's a financial problem. And there are plenty of interesting ways for them to make money that don't result in lung cancer deaths. So one of the big tobacco companies just acquired a drug manufacturer that helps treat COPD, which is very interesting. They paid $1.4 billion for this pharmaceutical company that sells an inhaled drug to help people fight the disease that they got from cigarettes, which is very interesting, very, very controversial. Obviously, a lot of people are, are extremely skeptical, but I think that like smoking rates are declining. Big Tobacco understands that cigarettes are going to go away and people are going to stop smoking them with or without regulation. Mm. And so moving to a tobacco-free future is is a, you know, a rare alignment of like the mission and the economic incentives. That's one of the things that we like about our business is that like the the most valuable customer to us is the one who's the most aggressive smoker. So the person that's smoking pack a, pack a day will spend the most money with us while they're transitioning. And so there's this alignment of our mission is to help people get off cigarettes and our economic incentive is to also help people get off cigarettes. So it's always good when those two things line up, but we'll see where the big tobacco stuff goes. It's still, it's still very early and they're still selling a lot of stuff. Although some of their new products are definitely cannibalizing the cigarette mm. they're selling. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what happens in the next 10 years. And what I find fascinating about you is that you studied finance when you were in college and then like, you get into the food business, you get into the smoking industry, and then you code stuff. And now you're also creating all these YouTube videos. So like, how do you acquire all these new skills? And I guess a larger question would be, what are your thoughts on being a specialist in one skill versus being a generalist in a number of skills? Yeah. I mean, I think in... I think that there isn't one path that's better than the other. I think that you kind of need to figure out what's best for you. Like we absolutely, like society, humanity as a whole, like absolutely needs like the Einstein to like go and like just work on mathematics for their entire life. We need those types of people. We need people that are, you know, super laser focused on things. I think there's also a role in society for people that are more, more generalists. And that's kind of where I've landed I don't know where it came from, probably some mix of, you know, genetics and environment like everything else, but I've just always been a tinkerer, always enjoyed taking things apart, learning about things. And now I have kind of rewired my brain to only be satisfied when I'm 
uncomfortable or like failing or making something bad. As soon as I start making something that's like really good and I start getting really good at something, I think like, okay, I, I, I need to get out of my comfort zone. I need to be, I need to be less comfortable. And for a lot of people, it's, it's, it's the opposite. Like there's this Ira Glass quote about when, when you try and make something new creatively, like a podcast or, or a YouTube video or a piece of art or anything, usually you only start creating after you've consumed a lot of great content. So you've probably listened to like all the best podcasts, but so you know what a good podcast sounds like. (laughs) And then you know, then that means that you also know that the first couple episodes of your podcast are objectively bad. And that's very, very depressing usually, but that's just a very normal part of the process. So if you can just bake that into your understanding of how the world works, then you can understand. Like, it's like if you went to the gym and you came home and you were like, I'm sore. This is bad. Something's not working. I should not work out again. Instead of coming back and saying, I'm sore. That's a good sign. Now, most people who go to the gym, they realize that soreness is a sign of progress, not a sign of failure or something being wrong. So yeah, I've, I've always kind of just liked to build a diverse set of skills. And I think that's sometimes aligned with, with entrepreneurial success. It, it, it certainly seems to be that, mm-hmm. I mean, Paul Graham has a quote about, or a, a tweet about how oftentimes successful startups require multiple different like knowledge sets. So yeah. you might like for Lucy, we need to understand product formulation, which is like biochemistry, regulatory, how to deal with the FDA, but also marketing and e-commerce and finance to run the business. So there's all these different skill sets. So it's great. PG says it's great if you can find those in just two or three founders. Mm -hmm. So we have a PhD with biochemistry background on our team. And then I kind of understand the marketing side and the technology side. So you get this like blend. It's really hard if it's like, we're going after a we're going after a, a, a business strategy that requires five different skill sets and the CEO only has one. Mm. So he has to defer, he or she has to defer to, you know, a different person for every single thing because they don't know about things. And this is where you get the classic problem where, oh, the person shows up, oh, they got this great idea for this app, but they don't know how to code. So they have to hire yeah. someone and then it's not a great relationship, right? right? It's like, uh, it's always great when like the founders have at least a, a reasonable understanding of, of any topic that the company is, you know, involved with. Hmm. And how did you meet your co-founders at Lucy? And I guess when you're choosing a co-founder, like how do you make sure, because it's a very long-term thing, maybe you're you're working at an idea for the next 10 years. How do you make sure that this is the person who will stay with me through the bad times? Yeah. I mean, I went to preschool with my co-founder and then we went to middle school (laughs) and high school. So I've talked to a lot of people about finding co-founders and it's not really great advice to be like, oh, just find, like I went to Northeastern, it's a good school, but it's not like an amazing school, but like my co-founder went to Harvard. (laughs) And so like, it's hard for me to say like, oh yeah, just go and find the guy that you went to preschool with and you you spent eight years in high school with and you know really, really well. And he went to Harvard and then just have him join your company. Like that'll be really, not really an option for everyone. But if that is an option, you should definitely do it. And I think the bigger, I think the bigger like message there is just like, David and I have a very 
similar like worldview, similar fundamental value structure, uh, similar understanding of like how to build trust and what and what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable. It's interesting because a lot of people will say, oh yeah, you guys have like, we've started three companies now together. We've been business partners for basically a decade and we've known each other for a very long time. They're like, oh, you must have been, you must have been best friends in like high school and middle school. And we were, we were definitely friends, but we were actually more like rivals almost. Oh. Like in middle school, we, do you know the game Counter-Strike? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we, we, we managed, we led rival Counter-Strike oh. that would like fight each other. And we would oh, like boy. talk trash to each other and stuff. <laughs> and, then in, and then in high school, we put the video games down and he was like the captain of the soccer team. And like, I played football. So we were kind of like oh, the rival bro jocks kind of thing going <laughs> yeah. on. And so like, we, we would always like hang out and have fun. But, and, then, and then in college, like we were both, we were both working at like different startups in Cambridge at the same oh. time, like went to different schools, like saw each other. We're definitely friends. And so there's, I think that it helps that like, we're, there's a little bit of like competition within the ranks. Yeah. We're like, oh, we want to be like the best. So we push each other. And then we still have like that, like open honesty. And then just the fact that like our families know each other, we go way back. Like there's like so many people that are connected. Like we're not like the types to like stab each other in the back, which I think yeah. is a lot of like the co-founder drama that happens is like, oh, this person they met like, you know, two weeks ago. And so they don't really, they can just write that person off. Like, yeah. it's not really an option for us. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of finding someone who's really talented generally. Like when we started, started a tech company, like David had studied bio, like he had kind of like no pr traditional qualifications, but I just knew that like, hey, we're young, he's smart. He can learn whatever skills he needs. And now he's like developed, he's been a CEO of this company for like five years and developed like a really strong skill set. And he's just a great people manager. He's a great accent to me. Like I'm very, I'm much more like technical. He's much more like empathetic, like that type of thing. Cool. If we could go back to when you were in your late teens, early twenties and say I was your best friend, like what kind of person were you? What were you reading? What were your influences that led to this journey of yours? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like a lot of millennials, my experience was very much shaped by the great, great recession. You know, there's this massive financial crisis, right? As we're going off to college in, you know, graduate high school in 2007, like the financial system is basically melting down. So, and like my, my, my family is not like super well off. So like, you know, kind of lost our house, like a lot of turmoil, a lot of wanting to like understand what's going on. Like, why are we getting so screwed all of a sudden? Like yeah. things seem to be going fine. And so economics was like a way to understand that. And like every day you open up the newspaper and the headline is like, you know, credit default swaps are yeah. problematic <laughs> because collateralized debt obligations have imploded <laughs> and the leverage ratios are out of, and like, yeah. yeah, you can't understand the news unless you are studying economics. Like this stuff's complicated. And I just right. wanted to know like, what is going on? So economics and finance was like a great way to learn that, but as I got to like the later stages, it was like, okay, go work for a bank. That's really like a grind. Like go work for a hedge fund cooler, but all the really cool hedge funds seem to be run by people with like PhDs and either yeah. physics doing high frequency trading, or like I have a friend who runs a biotech hedge fund and has like a, a bio PhD. So, so th there wasn't like a really clear path that was like amazing. I had some friends that were doing finance and they seemed to like it, but it, it didn't seem as just like entrepreneurial. So I, so I, I, I kind of moved down the stack. Like I worked at like, like 
a fortune 100 life insurance company. <laughs> then I worked at like a private equity firm that was like, you know, billions under management. Then yeah. I worked for like a series B startup with like 50 employees. Then I wound up working for a two person venture capital fund, if you can call it that, with like $10 million assets oh. under management, like very, very small. And at that point I saw like people starting companies and I would go and do a research, like they would come in and say, Hey, we're going to use all this fancy technology, blah, blah, blah. I would go do research on the, on the, on the technology. I remember big data was a big thing. And there was like Hadoop and uh, MapReduce is like the MapReduce paper had just come out. So everyone was saying big data in their pitches at this time. This was like 2012 ish, 2011. And yeah. so I went to a couple of lectures at MIT because I was in Boston. So close. I was able to just go over there and learned like not a lot about this stuff. I couldn't implement them, but I under the idea of MapReduce. Like I understood how big data gets processed when it's on a bunch of different servers. Like how do you do calculations when you can't hold everything into memory? And I would talk to the CEO who's like pitching this stuff. Just be like, oh, like what technology are you using? Are you thinking like closed source, open source, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then their, their eyes would just go blank because like they had no idea what they were talking about. And at that point I realized, Oh, like there's like a lot of fake it till you make it. Yeah. Like realistically, that big data problem. And it's not even like a knock on this particular founder. Like, like realistically, like they have to first create the product, then get the data, then solve that. By then they'll yeah. probably have a CTO and a team and stuff. And it might not even be an issue. The company might be wildly successful. Like it, right. it's it's not really a knock, but it's just like it just gave me the the the, the, like the realization that, Hey, a lot of people that start companies don't have it all figured out. Mm. And so like, why don't I just give it a try? And so that's kind of how I, how th th that was a big reason why I like took the leap. And I was like, I just want to start something. I want to feel, feel it out. And the one common theme that I see in you, when you meet people or when you're making all these YouTube videos is you have a particular focus on how people think. And I guess my question is, when you're watching a video or when you're reading a book, what makes you pause? I mean, that's, that's interesting. That's a very interesting question. I feel, I feel like honestly, what makes me pause is stuff that makes me laugh, like stuff that's funny or, so, or something where there's like subtext where I, I, I love when like, like the New Yorker does a profile on someone and there's just like this very subtle like like line of shade going through okay. that. and they're just like the 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 journalist or the author is like is like clearly throwing shade at this person but they're doing mm -hmm. and i've we've we've been the subject of this like there was yeah. a massive new yorker article about soylent and there was a lot of like subtle shade in there but it was a very <laughs> positive article but you can see that like to a certain reader making okay. fun of us a little bit but doing so in a very like subtle way. So I, that, that's just like what makes me kind of pause. And, and <laughs> in terms of like, in terms of like thought processes, I mean, like, I think, I don't know. I, I think what, what really makes me pause at this point is when someone has, has, it's not that they have that unique of a thought process. It's that they've been able to distill it in a really, really memeable way. Like, mm. you know, the whole idea, not, not like, not like Instagram meme or, you know, or like GIF meme, but like, you know, Dawkins meme, like mimetic, like the idea of mimesis, right. like passing through. So like, like the idea of, 
of like being on your deathbed and having no regrets or like living every day to the fullest, taking chances, taking risks. Like that's a very basic concept. I feel like a lot of people throughout history have had that idea, but right. Jeff Bezos put it into like the regret minimization framework. Yeah. And that sticks so much better than any of the other stuff. So like, he's kind of the guy that's known for that idea right now. Yeah. It's not entirely original, but it's also super valuable to put it into a unique package that you can say, okay, today I'm following the regret minimization framework. And there's, and, and it's interesting because like at the extremes, this turns into like charlatanism and there's a lot of people that all they do is like repackage <laughs> ideas and they don't, they don't really push anything for, but, uh, but, but I think like when done right, it's really, really powerful. Like, I mean, PG and YC have a lot of really good, like very make something people want. Like that's like yeah. the most basic advice. Like, is there anything it's very obvious, but mm. at the same time, it's actually useful. Like it's actually a great sentence to have kicking around in your brain when you're trying to build things. And I see stuff all the time where it's like, that sounds like a good business because you've mishmashed crypto, VR and every trend together. But it's like, does anyone actually want what you're building? And right. so I think that I think that it's that and distillation is really, really hard. You know, there's mm -hmm. that there's that famous quote, like I I would have written you a, a shorter letter, but I didn't have enough time. Like it takes a long time to distill concepts down, especially to get it down to like three words, like regret minimization framework that actually right. speaks volumes. And you mentioned YC and you've been through YC two times, I guess. And so removing the funding part, uh, if you hadn't been through YC, what are the things you would have lost in terms of the knowledge that you got or the network that you got? I mean, I had a weird YC journey because oh. my first company was was in Imagine K12, which was run by YC partners, but was was a separate entity and then eventually got acquired and rolled into YC. So that company technically made me like a retroactive YC alum. Like I got yeah. access to everything. And then and then out of the ashes of that company came Soylent and the Soylent corporate entity had been through YC and I was added as a co-founder on that project. Okay. So then I became the co-founder of a YC company that where I hadn't been through that YC, but the company was doing well. So it was like, I was kind of part of it. And then for Lucy, it was just completely normal, like went through fully. So like, I like, have I been through one time or one and a half times or three times? But in, in general, I mean, I, I really like YC. The biggest benefit for me has been it does a really, really good job of getting you into the builder mindset and getting you out of the idea that you should be partnering with big companies or buying things from agencies or hiring people for everything. It's like at the just the early stage, it's a chance to breathe. You have enough money to pay yourself a living wage a pretty reasonable amount of time. And you can just go and try and lay a really solid foundation, whether that's exploring the particular technologies that you're going to use. You can take time to read books. You don't have your calendars completely open. Like my first, you know, imagine K-12 YC experience with like there were whole weeks where I was just reading books to learn new programming skills okay. because I was so behind and it was a great way to like catch up. So I think, 
I think YC is really great. And then the second time with Lucy going through YC, I had left Soylent. It was a 50 person company. I had a 10 person engineering team. Like I had all, I had every resource, HR, all these different things. When I went to Lucy, it was very hard to say, okay, now I'm an individual contributor again. And YC was very good at like kicking me back into gear and letting me, and letting me, kind of giving me permission to be that early stage entrepreneur again. Like that's probably less of a common problem. The most common problem is that people often apply to YC where it's like, oh, they were at Google for four years. They did an MBA then they were at Microsoft and they, and they started this company, but they have some development team doing this and a marketing team and a branding team. And they're not really diving deep enough into anything, any particular discipline to have a really unique insight. And I feel like this isn't the only way to build a business, but YC certainly loves when founders are like world-class experts in a very, very small niche or very, very small area. And that has served them well, like some of the best companies in the world have come out of YC. And I guess, so this is something I picked from one of your videos. I'll just read it to you. I know it like have your thoughts on this. So you say the most important part of my resume is that I strive to find a balanced view of the world. And I love testing counterfactuals, playing devil's advocate. And uh, I take a very deliberate approach with my media diet. So can you share how you do that? I, I think it's just kind of a natural, natural thing. I mean, I see, I see most of this stuff as like, as like a puzzle. Like I don't come to most of these headlines or stories or narratives or political ideas with the idea that there's anyone who has it all figured out. I think that particularly in politics, but really in, in anything, you know, the, these ideas are very, are very, very emergent and there's a huge value to being on the cutting edge. Like if you, if you just take like, you know, how to build a startup that the, I just, the entire framework has turned over several times, right? Like YC, it was part of that where there, you know, obviously there's like, you know, the, the SaaS revolution and cloud computing enables, you know, scaling of web servers very cheaply. You don't need to raise a $10 million series seed anymore. Hmm. So YC can fund all of these hackers and stuff. So if you're, if you're, just living the dogma of the time, you'll kind of be left behind. So if you want to be on the cutting edge, like it's really good to interrogate those things. And, and I think that there's just, there's a huge value in under, in having empathy for your opponent, even if you have a, this is why I understand why people are so into, you know, censorship and deplatforming generally, because I feel like it's pretty, it's pretty basic to like know thy enemy. Even if you are entirely dogmatic about one particular issue, you should read and understand what's motivating your enemy so you can better disarm them. So I do a lot of that. I, I really, I really enjoy, I also view politics and media in general, very much like a McKinsey consultant would, I suppose. Like I see it as I want to understand like a really, really clear map of the territory before I decide my path. And and what I mean by that is, is, and I think, I I think that's really valuable as an entrepreneur there. Like, if you look at like the last election, most people 
were very much concerned with like, with like, I want this candidate to win for this reason. And so I I'm looking for, I'm looking for content that will confirm that belief. And I am annoyed by content that like challenges that belief. Whereas if you look at anyone who works in business or finance, especially in, in like the investing world, the bigger question is, who is going to win? <laughs> like yeah. it's it's much less like can we get our candidate to win, and more just like what's actually going to happen? What is actually happening? And and there's so many things where it just it's the the narratives are completely unclear, and we don't know. I mean, COVID was like that for so long. Like there were there were constantly takes of people getting it getting it wrong, and then a couple months later, you realize oh that like that was actually a completely false narrative. So I think. Um, just trying to like pursue like as much information as possible and get a full view is, is important. Also, I mean, politically we're going through like an explosion of the Overton window, obviously like there's, there's more extremism than ever on both sides. Mm. So understanding like what's driving that and what relates those two is really, really important. I, I, I happen to think that, that, you know, like the, the extreme left and the extreme right are they're they're more similar than people think. I think that fundamentally they're upset with the way America is going and they're like dissatisfied. And I feel like if you think about like America should, I think we all agree, like America should have a very high like customer satisfaction rate. <laughs> like, right. like we want, we want all of every American or every, you know, human being to be happy and satisfied. And right now satisfaction is extremely low. So we should be interrogating that and understanding why people are, are upset and then under, and then try and understand what positions it's driven them to and whether or not those positions are good. I, I, I fundamentally don't see a problem with exploring fringe political ideas. I think that's kind of the beauty of democracy is that we can evolve and vote for change. And I think that there's a lot of different models that could be adopted or could be very valuable. And that's the, you know, that's the liberal way, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking about these subtle forms of censorship before I started recording the call. But one example that comes to mind is you made a very interesting video on Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes that I started this week, I guess, or maybe last week. But and again, like she has been in the news and recently you see all these articles popping up where they're trying to connect that fraud with the entire VC model of funding startups. Yeah. And, and so when you look at that, what is the long-term impact of demonizing capitalism? Because you're taking one single case and you're trying to like sort of project that into this larger group of VCs. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a bit of it has been overblown just because if you look at the returns on VC, it's extremely good. So clearly like, like, the New York Times is not destroying venture capital as a, as a, an asset class. Like that's not yeah. happening. But I do think that some of the content is very depressing and demotivating. Like I think I just think that like there are obviously there are frauds and like they should be sought out. And that's the role of investigative journalism. Like I really like what John Kerry. <laughs> Did. Like that was a fundamentally noble thing of him to do to like yeah. go and and investigate this company, especially mm-hmm. since like it had gotten so extreme. I think the interesting question, and hopefully the 
the court case will illuminate a little bit of this is like, when did it become a fraud exactly? Mm. I think she was like 20 when she started the company at Stanford. Yeah. Like if you've ever talked to like a 20 year old, like they really do believe that they can go and do crazy <laughs> things. And like, right. I, 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 I'm very skeptical about the idea that she was like, yes, I'm going to dedicate, I have a Stanford degree coming up, but it's a better <laughs> idea to go start a 10 year fraud right now. Like, mm there are better ways to get rich quick, I feel like, than run this massive fraud for like so long. And also so, when, you, when you look at one of your other videos of us on Moderna and Moderna had been demonized for so long before COVID yeah. happened and now they are the heroes. So yeah, so that's that's where it gets a little like problematic is where you're, you're, trying, to, you're trying to fit every company into that narrative. And and again, it, like, it, that comes down to economic incentives. And I see this personally on YouTube all the time. Like you make a video about Theranos, it gets like millions of views. And, and so then you're kind of in this rat race where it's like, oh, I got to make more and more negative content. And pretty soon you're shoehorning companies that just had a rough go of it into, oh, they're just like Theranos. It was a disaster. <laughs> There's one channel on YouTube that does this particularly. There's this company, Sunrun, that... Oh that sells that sells solar panels and their CEO is this woman Lynn Jurek. She's it's I think that I, I was crunching the numbers and I'm pretty sure she runs the largest publicly traded tech company that where she is a co-founder. She wasn't the CEO when the company started, but she is a co-founder. So now she is co-founder and CEO of this like $10 billion company. She has created more value essentially than Elizabeth Holmes destroyed, like yeah. the price tag on Theranos is crazy. Like $8 billion is a lot of money. So like, it makes it sense that you'd focus on that. But like, if you look up Linger, it's like, she's been featured on like solar magazine, like one time, like no one talks about her. And I, I didn't even know her. Yeah. And this isn't like a, oh, it's, just, it's so sexist thing. It's just like, it's just like, it feels like we should kind of balance these things out and not be like, you know, oh, Elizabeth Holmes is this like maniacal person. Like, like yeah. there is a positive story there, but people love the drama of Theranos. Right. And it's just, you know, it's, it's sad. I mean, at the same time, it's like, it, it is important to tell people on a regular basis, like where the line is for fraud, because there is a massive like tidal wave pushing entrepreneurs to like, okay, now, now it's not next year's revenues. It's five years, it's five year out revenues. And now it's not, you know, it's, it's community adjusted EBITDA and it's, you know, projected ARR that's not actually recurring. So there there's, there's plenty of incentives pushing entrepreneurs to be more hyperbolic. And when that gets go, when that heats up too much, you get bubbles and bubbles are bad for everyone basically. So we do want to avoid that. We do, we, we do want some skepticism. I think we just don't want people that are, are trying to like, you know, shoehorn a company into a narrative that isn't quite there with my content. I'm actually trying to inspire people and, 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 highlight successful entrepreneurs and just give good examples because I don't think that there's enough of that content out there, especially particularly on YouTube. Like obviously like Forbes has like 30 under 30 where they highlight like tons and tons of people. Like there's a lot of content out there, but there, there just isn't that much on YouTube. There's a lot of negative, negative stuff about 
companies, but there wasn't as much positive stuff. So that's what I wanted to focus on. Right. And when you look at this distrust of institutions that is rising at this point, and when you combine yeah. that with crypto and the metaverse and all these things, do you think that the rise of the sovereign individual is a natural Darwinian path that this evolution will lead to? Yeah. I mean, the biggest takeaway for a sovereign individual to me is just like whether or not you like the ideas that are presented, they're probably coming. So you should be prepared. And that's a big reason why it, it's helpful to understand the political landscape or the societal landscape and have a really clear map. Because if there's, if like, the if the mountainous formations are funneling you into a canyon and you're going to go a certain direction you're better off like preparing for that whether or not you think it's a good direction you would want to be prepared it's like there was a there was a big like hubbub about a venture capitalist reading karl marx and being inspired by that but like i think that you could totally read karl marx and be inspired to be a capitalist because like the main Marxist critique is that the capitalists are in the good situation and the workers aren't. So you'd want to be a capitalist. Yeah. So, like, it doesn't seem crazy to me that you would come, that you would read Karl Marx and be like, well, my two options are be a revolutionary or be a capitalist. And yeah. the capitalist lifestyle is better than the revolutionary lifestyle. So they, lots right. of people read Marx and become capitalists. You see right. this all the time. But yeah, I mean, the crazy thing about Sovereign Individual is just how long ago it was written. Like, it feels ah, like it yes. was written two years ago. <laughs> it's it's really, really wild. And there's this whole chapter on like the, the it doesn't entirely hold out. There's this whole chapter on the, I can't even remember the name of it. The, like the, the year 2000 flip over, what, what do they call it? Y, Y2K. <laughs> I haven't heard about Y2K in a long time. That was a big but yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting stuff. The crypto the crypto universe is obviously very very small still, but growing very very quickly. And there's, I mean, it's it's clearly going to be a thing in some capacity. the The only question is just like, is is there a longer winter coming at some point? I think that's the big question. Like. It, 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 will we like? I don't think the question is like, will crypto or be be big or not? Like thirty years from now, the question is like, along the way, is there like an eight year period of kind of like a doldrums, like we've seen right. in like VR, AI, or even like dot coms, right? Mm -hmm. That's what happens with like these like hype cycles if they overheat, and that's why like some some skepticism is good for the ecosystem. Every single person in the world is just saying like, yes, like. Like all we need to do is just buy crypto. You're going to wind up with so many people that are just, are just rich and not actually building anything. Yeah. Like it's at a certain point, you guys have to like the crypto community has to actually like build stuff and like make things like useful, but the hype is good because like it draws people in, pays people salaries. Like, like it, it gets, it gets the flywheel going. It's just like, a, it's, it's always care. It's always about like dialing in the right amount of hype, the right amount of things, like finding the, the optimal path. And a lot of times we kind of oscillate between, between hype cycles and doldrums or winters, but you know, it's, I, I try and take a very, very long view. My latest, my latest thing is like, I think humanity has been around for like hundreds of thousands of years. So I try and think about like, okay, what, what will, what will humanity look like in a couple hundred thousand years? Because, because whatever that, whatever that looks like, we're more than halfway there, Yeah, which yeah. is kind of crazy to think about. Like when we <laughs> right. look back, we'll be like, oh, it's the year like 300,000 
and <laughs> we have, you know, obviously like near faster than light travel. Like yes. we're, we're, we're on mil- like tons of planets all over the place. Back in 2021, we were more than halfway there, you know, like that's kind mm. of crazy to think about. I mean, that's not always like super applicable for everything, but I think that in general, like people are very, very much focused on like next year, next month, next week. Like Elon gets a ton of hate for all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's like, come on, like some of this stuff, it's like, (laughs) sure. He might, he might miss by a couple of years, but if he gets it in the next 10 years, that's still really cool. (laughs) Like Uh, nobody else is doing it. (laughs) Exactly. And it's like, it just seems like the stuff he's working on is cool and probably good yeah 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 and i think peter Thiel talks a lot about the great stagnation and how the travel and the medicine industry was stagnant for maybe 50 years and i think what he says is a lot of it was due to a lot of regulation and one of the only reasons why software was able to become so big was because when it moves very fast so it's difficult to regulate and then our politicians don't know much about software now it seems they are catching up somehow like not intellectually, but they're just trying to regulate whatever comes at hand. And I so, mean, cert- yeah, kind of. I mean, they're definitely trying to regulate like privacy, and that's why we have all this cookie banners and whatnot. Yeah. But, but I mean, there's still. I, I don't think that there's a single like major law about crypto yet. Like there was like that proposed rider, but there hasn't been like okay, here's the crypto regulation framework. So, I think that's why so many people are excited about crypto is because it, it, it is. very much is that unregulated space still. But yeah, I mean the. The great, st- I mean, all the stats seem to line up with the great stagnation. I mean, look at median real wages. There's the whole question about the 1970s and whatnot. And there's a lot of people pointing to different things. I, I certainly hope that that some of the the harder problems start getting solved. It, it feels like people are starting to work on the things more. Like there's a lot yeah. of space companies now, a lot of robotics companies. I think that's that's a really critical piece of entrepreneurship. And I think I think a lot of it comes down to just like we need to give people permission to take risks on these type of projects because I just don't think we have enough people working on it. Like, like the, the video this week was about boom supersonic and the, and the founder Blake Scholl is like this really incredible entrepreneur who's been working on this for like 10 years. He's going to probably work on it for another 10 years before he even ships a plane. Like it's a huge, huge project. And before that he was building an app to sp- to scan barcodes. Like yeah. <laughs> he was doing like, like literally the Silicon Valley, like trope of like it's mobile, it's social, it's commerce, you know? it's like all of those things it's like it's not like he was like this trained aerospace guy for his entire life and like the same thing with like delhi and at founders fund doing a space space manufacturing company with varda it's like he's a vc like most people would like start their own vc fund and just like kind of stay in like the financial industry maybe do something in like fintech but like it's it's cool that he's like yeah i'm just gonna go and figure this out it's gonna be really hard i'm gonna hire all the right people but like fundamentally like i'm gonna attack this big problem it's gonna be you know a 20 30 40 year project like it's not gonna be you know tomorrow but i i I think that that's really exciting so i think that hopefully with more of these stories like people will kind of will kind of be inspired to take on more ambitious things that they feel like underqualified for. But look, if, if no one's working on a problem, you can be the most qualified person in a couple of years. It's Delian's company is really interesting. And I was watching one of Elon's talks and this was, he gave that talk maybe eight or nine years back. And he's talking about this idea for SpaceX. And he's saying that when the railways were first being built in California, they were just like, it was forests and jungles and mountains and all these things. They're building the railway through that. And who knew that around like 
150 years from that time we'll have silicon valley and all these things yeah. just because of like that allowed that and so with spacex it was like like you know mars will make the underlying technology and then there are all these other entrepreneurs who will come up with all these ideas and darian is such a great example of that like spacex made so many things possible with reusable rocket rockets yeah. and now we have maybe we'll have these space factories in a few years yeah exactly Yeah. Yeah, I think like the second order effects are really important. A lot of these technologies feel very incremental, but when they when they add up, you get, you know, whole changes. Like, you know, the people that were working on like making stronger glass, you know, in like the 90s, probably like the most unrewarding, most boring stuff, but then like 2007 rolls around and the iPhone can work because the glass screen doesn't crack, doesn't crack and doesn't scratch. right and like now corning and grilla glass are like big companies and stuff but it's like and it's the same thing for like you know shrinking semiconductors down just a little bit more <laughs> or adding <laughs> right. just a little bit more memory like it's extremely incremental progress you know the average person does not get excited by you know what like you know g skill or corsair is doing this year with like memory or or you know even like a new cpu like maybe a, a gpu gets somebody excited if they're a gamer but like but then you compound this over you know a couple decades and all of a sudden like an entirely new thing is possible you get like fortnite right right yeah yeah i'm really interested to talk about like education in a sense because like America was founded around 300 years back and back then all these countries had kings and queens and a particular set of governing people and when the founders of America sat down and they were thinking from a first principles perspective what is the way that all these people can be governed and they came up with this system of representative democracy and that has worked so well for America and it has spread all over the world and it has done so much good and now sitting here thinking about what happens in the next 100 or 200 years when you think about from a first principles perspective we had to build education from scratch what would that look like does it even make sense for kids to be segregated in grades and i, th- I think everybody agrees that online teaching is probably a better way or what people are doing with synthesis school and we have lambda school and all these things mm-hmm. so yeah do you have any thoughts on how we can rebuild some of the stuff with education i mean my first company was in education technology but i wasn't very successful so <laughs> i i don't know too much about it and my experience with education now is i take online courses pretty frequently and i enjoy those and i watch a lot of youtube tutorials to learn things or or read blog posts or books and it's all very self-taught very auto autodidact but i mean in terms of the the kind of more traditional educational path i mean it feels like socialization is super important so i i would be surprised if there was a an entirely new path for K through 12 yeah. certainly the topics that are taught and the way they're taught like i feel like tool assisted will be big like you know like when i was learning math i had a ti83 calculator but i remember <laughs> wolfram alpha was coming out and that was amazing cuz you could ask it like natural language questions basically and it would like draw you graphs and and do all this insane stuff and it and i think it made learning easier because it was more visual so i feel like there'll probably be like some incremental hybridization between you know the content you know flipped classroom occasionally to adding tools you know you can okay if you're learning a language you can get extra reps in by by interacting with some sort of ai But I think that I think that there'll still be a role for for in-person 
you know, like right. group settings, if for no other reason than like it's good for competition and social socialization, then, you know, college, college is like the big question. I think that the it's a mistake to focus on the Ivy League because they're worth it. <laughs> like it's super expensive, <laughs> but obviously the incremental earnings of an Ivy League alum are right. more than the cost. So no one's underwater or very mm. few people. There are some people that go and get, you know, like a degree and, and can't get a job or whatever. But in general, the Ivy League is still a deal if you can get in. It's more like, I think there's something like 4,000 universities and nearly all of them have pegged their pricing to the Ivy League. So 50K <laughs> was a big number for a while. Now it's like 70K and they all yeah. kind of, and, and there's this weird, it's kind of a Veblen good, meaning like the more expensive it is, the better people think mm. it is. I have heard a couple interesting critiques. I mean, I'd really like more specialization in colleges. Like I went to Northeastern specifically because it had a really weird entrepreneurial background, like Biz Stone went there for a little bit and he founded oh, Twitter and yeah. then Sean Fanning went there and he started Napster and Napster like changed my life right. because <laughs> I was able to like download so much software, learn all sorts of stuff. That's where I, my first copy of Premiere Pro, like, like all these things like Dreamweaver, like building websites. Like, I mean, obviously like it's wrong and I should have paid for that, but I couldn't because I was broke right. and kid and, and like, it was amazing. So I, I just felt like, okay, there's something interesting going on in the school. And then they also had a five-year program where you do internships for six months. And it was just a very different experience. And I liked that, like, mm -hmm. sure, I wasn't going to the best school. Like, I went to a weird high school where, like, I think, like, 50% of my of my graduating class went to the Ivy League plus Stanford. It's, like, crazy school. So, obviously, I wasn't going to, like, a really, like, amazing school. But it had this interesting experience where, like, I'd be getting something different. And Juilliard is kind of similar. The University of Chicago used to do this with like very young faculty. I forget which school Steve Jobs went to, but it's kind of like Reed, yeah, Reed, it, Reed, Reed, yeah. and Reed has like a very, very unique like like teaching methodology. But throughout the years, there's been a push for more and more standardization. Like Northeastern literally dropped that five year program because it was a little weird and it was okay. turning people away. So now they offer literally the exact same experiences Boston University across the way. And I think they're ranked like kind of similarly and that's yeah. <laughs> great for them. But I feel like I want to see more fragmentation. I want like, I want it to look like the car market. Like what's the minivan of, of college that will just like get me somewhere with a bunch of gear and like, what's the sports car? What's the <laughs> Cadillac Escalade? Like there, there should be a lot of different experiences. I feel like, right. and you can kind of get that if you go international. Like I know some people that went and got PhDs in the UK and I think mm -hmm. a PhD only, there only takes like three years. <laughs> I don't know, but there's, there's certain, there's certain things where if you go abroad, you can get it done faster and then yeah. you come back and you, and, it, and people might be like, Oh, you did it there in general. You're getting the same credential. You still get to say right. your PhD and, and it's, and you didn't have to spend five years. So I feel like there should be a lot of, a, a lot, a lot of different opportunities and, and, and just, just things that are different for the, that fit different categories instead of every college has every program and it's four <laughs> years and it has a dorm and it has a thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, though i think i guess globalization is like it kills diversity in a lot of ways 
Yeah. But I mean, there's people that are challenging this stuff. So hopefully things happen, but I don't know. It's just like, it's interesting that the two options are like $60,000 a year college or like, you know, like some weird ISA thing, (laughs) Lambda school. It's like, like, what about like the $20,000 option or like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not really there. It's kind of like this weird, like barbell situation, lots of content on like the free side and lots of content on like the extremely expensive side, but nothing really in like the middle. Like maybe that's like an opportunity, but maybe it's not, I don't know. I'm really yeah. And I guess my last question would be, if you had to recommend three books that will have a significant impact on civilization in the next few decades, what would those be? I really like Tyler Cowen's Stubborn Attachments. I just read that. I thought that was really, really great distillation of why growth is good and why GDP growth in particular is kind of a worthwhile pursuit because it's very abstract. I think a lot of people just think about it like Scrooge McDuck, like stacking gold <laughs> coins. But I think he does a really good job laying out the the argument in favor of of economic growth, which is an argument that usually doesn't need to be made. <laughs> here, here we are. Then I'd probably go back a ways. I just read The Iliad and I really liked it. I thought it was very interesting and I thought it related a lot to business, a lot more than people might think. It's fundamentally a book about trust. It's not like, it's kind of like Troy the movie, but it's not really like Troy the movie. It's <laughs> very different, but it just, it deals with the, I don't know, just there's very interesting dynamics. Like the gods are these like all powerful people, but they like come down to earth in these like weird ways and just kind of like mess everything up. Okay. It's kind, it kind of feels like, like VCs sometimes yeah. can be like that, where they're like the gods, which is very funny. And like, yeah. you're the one down there actually like bleeding in the trenches with like fighting the battle. And then like the God comes down and just like gives your competitor $20 million. And now you're like, what the hell? My- yeah. Why do you like them more than me? And, and that's exactly what happens in the Iliad. Like, like the gods will come down and just like change the tide of battle all of a sudden. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting it's just a very fundamental like human story that's existed for literally thousands of years. And then I'm trying to think of what else is uh, is a good book. I really like The Unincorporated Man. That was yeah. Palmer Luckey's recommendation. It's it's very interesting because it it tells the story of this like ultra libertarian future where everyone is incorporated and has shares in themselves and everyone owns shares in in their future earnings so when you go to the grocery store instead of paying with money you pay with like shares in yourself and when you're born the government gets some and your parents get some and so like (laughs) you're never you never own a hundred percent of yourself so you can never fully choose what to do and it's it's interesting because it's 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 a very rigorous critique of that idea. And I think that there's a lot of stuff that's going on with crypto where we're seeing like this kind of uh, anarcho-capitalist or libertarian maximization. And it's interesting to interrogate that through a sci-fi novel that's at the same time very entertaining and has yeah. a lot of just fun sci-fi. There's like, you know, body modification and, <laughs> and you know, interesting right, yeah. like you know, architecture and whatnot. So there's, it's a, it's a fun book, but it, it still tells an interesting story. And I think that there's a lot of, I, I, I think Palmer seized himself as the unincorporated man who was this kid and wound up selling this company for a lot of money, became wealthy, could choose whatever he wanted to do and actually was able to like kind of make his own future. And so it's an interesting, it's an interesting pick for him, but I think any entrepreneur would enjoy it if you've been in the situation where you've sold a piece of the business 
and now you don't have full control and what's that like? And in some ways it's amazing because you have a partner on the team, you have more money, you can do more interesting things. Like in the unincorporated man, they talk about how your shareholders are invest are, are aligned with you economically. So yeah. if, if it makes sense for you to move to San Francisco to make more money and have a better life and be happier, like they will support that your shareholders will support that. So it's not always just like, Oh, they own you and they're making you work for nothing, but right. there are some really interesting, you know, consequences. So obviously the unincorporated man, like the titular role, the, the titular character is, is like someone who's unincorporated and then the consequences of that, but uh, very, very fun book. Yeah, it, it is an interesting book. And I've tried to find so many interviews of the authors, but there are just so few. I mean, There's like I guess, one or two. Yeah, I mean, it's a small book. It's not yeah. super popular. Yeah. And I was super interested in learning what the author could talk about because it's such an interesting book. But thank you, John, for doing this interesting conversation. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> yeah. I'll talk to you later. <laughs>